Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges, such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. Welcome to this episode of Innovation Matters. Today's topic is tending regional and local gardens of innovation to accelerate the sustainability transition. And our guest today is uh, Christina Chaminade. She's the director of the Master's Program in Innovation and Global Sustainable Development at Lund University in Sweden. And uh, she's working on the nexus between innovation, sustainable development, and nature conservation with a particular focus on system transformation in developing countries. In other words, how emerging economies, developing countries can accumulate the necessary competencies and institutions that would allow them to upgrade and diversify and grow into developing countries. And she's, she's been working in China, India, South Africa, Thailand, Costa Rica, Brazil, as well as Italy and Sweden, where she is now located. So today's topic is uh, tending regional and local gardens of innovation to accelerate the sustainability transition. In other words, what kind of innovation can happen at the regional or at the local level rather than at the national level? Why is it important to understand it? And in particular, why is it important to understand the process through which culture changes, competencies are developed and different parameters are changed to allow for innovation or networks and innovation to take place? The discussion is based in part on um, her publication, Understanding Processes of Path Renewal and Creation in Thick Specialized Regional Innovation System, with evidence from two textile districts in Italy and Sweden, and also a publication on the role of territorially embedded innovation ecosystems, accelerating sustainability transformations, a case study of the transformation of organic wine production in Tuscany, Italy. We'll put up links to both of those publications on this on the homepage of this podcast. So, as you note in uh, in your publication and in the discussions we've had, there's been quite a bit of focus on the national innovation system, but there's uh, actually not much reason to focus too much on that because a lot is happening regionally, locally, and also also internationally, and we haven't really seen, although we have digital technologies, we haven't seen the much-wanted death of distance. Uh, there's a reason why so many companies still cluster in Silicon Valley or in London, where they have to pay enormous salaries to keep people there. And cities still stand for innovation, most innovation across the board. And it's, so it's important to understand and support net, the networks and capabilities that appear and can appear at uh, the local and the regional level, and specifically the role of governance in the context of the sustainability transition, which basically involves creating opportunities out of activities that support sustainable development. So let's start with some basic notions. Uh, what do you see as the role of innovation policy, especially for sustainability and social innovation and what you call sustainability transformation? First of all, thank, uh, thanks a lot for inviting me to be part of this podcast uh, series. 
I think, I mean, with regard to these first questions, I think that the role of innovation policy is changing. In the past, innovation policy was associated with, uh, first of all, competitiveness and economic growth. That's the reason why the concept of innovation systems uh, was developed, but also with addressing failures in the system, with fine-tuning the system, and uh, generally promoting innovation with this idea of uh, let 1,000 flowers bloom. Nowadays, the, the role of, uh, of innovation policy is very different. In particular, if we are considering the sustainability challenges and the Agenda 2030 is, is really associated with these uh, system transformations, the radical uh, system change. And also, it is associated with incorporating a certain directionality in innovation policies. So rather than letting innovation or promoting innovation because it will lead to growth and competitiveness, it's really about promoting innovation in a certain direction to achieve certain goals, like, for example, the Agenda 2030 or a strong and weak sustainability. I mean, strong sustainability refers to achieving economic growth and social well-being within planetary boundaries. And it is is very important because it's assuming that um, current systems of production and consumption need to radically change to avoid planetary tipping points. In contrast with this strong sustainability notion, weak sustainability refers to a stronger focus on economic growth uh, with social well-being and environmental sustainability as secondary objectives. And the consequences of focusing on weak sustainability as a kind of goal for innovation policy is that uh, there is a great risk of transgressing the planetary boundaries and provoking undesirable changes in Earth systems. So in in very simple terms, weak sustainability is about keeping focus on economic growth, maintaining current production and consumption patterns, and trying to reduce the environmental and social impacts of those. And uh, this is associated with the traditional innovation policy, while a strong sustainability is about acknowledging that most of our current problems like climate change or biodiversity loss are the consequence of current unsustainable systems of production and consumption, and that they need to be changed. So innovation policy is important in both, but uh, the issue of the directionality, uh, as I'm uh, indicated, is uh, is extremely important too. Well, thank you very much. This is actually very relevant to to our work. We we like to distinguish between innovation policy that provides the fundamentals, the the rule of law, the infrastructure, or what some call horizontal policy, and the innovation policy, which supports uh, specific initiatives and tries to play a catalytic role. And what is being added to that now is the idea of innovation for sustainable development, and I think that chimes with your idea of strong versus versus weak sustainability, and also the kind of directionality or mission orientation that uh, some are some are increasingly promulgating, at least as part of innovation policy for not only sustainable reasons but also for reasons of diversification or promoting disruptive innovation that can create entirely new sectors and we hope also more sustainable in all ways sectors of the economy. So given this, could you elaborate on the different levels uh, of innovation policy in this context? Which level is more important for accelerating system transformation and what is the role of, uh, of other levels? 
and maybe something about uh, the role of the UN and international organizations in coordinating, sharing best practices, developing standards, and so on and so forth. Uh, yes, I mean, this is a very important question and one that is often asked, I mean, which is the, the best level of intervention when we want to promote innovation. And I would say that uh, that all the three levels are important, the regional, the national, and the international. And let me start with the, with the one that is uh, usually associated with innovation policy, which is the, the, the national uh, level and the nation state and national innovation policies. We know that nations differ significantly in the configuration of the national innovation systems in their actors, the networks, and the formal and informal institutions. And uh, many formal institutions like intellectual property rights or education or research policies, which are paramount for innovation, are the responsibility of nation states. It is also at the level of the nation or the nation states that usually the innovation strategy is being defined and thus this directionality of change that I mentioned that is so important for sustainability. So nation states are very important and national policies are very important for what you were mentioning before, for the infrastructure, for setting up uh, the institutional framework, but also for setting up the direction of change. However, it is very well known also in innovation uh, studies that uh, knowledge is very sticky and tends to be concentrated in particular regions or locations around the world. Usually organizations and other uh, institutions, they tend to look for knowledge uh, that they need to innovate uh, with other organizations in close proximity. Um, and that makes the regional level as, uh, as very key uh, understanding knowledge networks and capabilities and innovative uh, capabilities. But so I say that knowledge is very sticky, is concentrated in certain regions, but it's also very interesting to see that worldwide those regional innovation hubs are highly interconnected at international level. Uh, so when organizations cannot find the knowledge that they need to innovate in the close proximity, they actually tend to link with other regional innovation hubs, with other innovation hotspots around the world. And this is particularly clear for firms located in innovation systems in emerging economies. So we have uh, seen in previous uh, research that uh, it is those firms uh, located in regional innovation systems in emerging economies that show a highest propensity to go global to search for the knowledge uh, that they need uh, to innovate. So we have uh, talked about the importance of national innovation policies and regional innovation systems and policies, but since innovation is highly globalized, part of this acceleration uh, is, uh, is related to sharing and accessing the knowledge that is not available in close proximity. And I think that this is where international dimension becomes really crucial. So international organizations such as the UN play a pivotal role once setting the direction, uh, agreements like Agenda 2030 or the, the Paris agreements set the directionality of the change and uh, is putting pressure to nation states but also to, region, to regions uh, to introduce uh, changes. But on the other hand, international organizations like uh, WTO or WIPO, they set the rules of the game for knowledge exchange at the international level through trade, intellectual property regulations, foreign investments, etc. 
just to give you an example, one of the the, the main um, barriers that uh, that companies in uh, located in regional innovation systems in emerging economies were uh, indicated uh, for their innovation process was actually the mobility of human capital. So they they wanted uh, or they needed greater uh, facilities for the mobility of human capital in order to to move and to access the knowledge, for example, between headquarters and subsidiaries located in different parts of the world. So international regulations and international organizations are key. Thank you very much. This is very interesting. I have to constrain myself on um <laughs> So it's not common too much, but just to note a few things. You said the importance of the national level, but also the international level. And in particular, that knowledge is sticky. And I would also say distributed among different actors. It's not one person that could do. We tried central planning, basically. It didn't, it, uh, it didn't Absolutely. work. Absolutely. We, no, we have the knowledge problem. And you also talked about the importance about having local innovation ecosystems with I presume a certain critical mass of different actors and linkages, but that ones that are successful also have strong international linkages. And in fact, one of the reasons that Korea was so successful was the concentration in export-oriented sectors, which made it necessary to, to create all kinds of knowledge linkages and spillovers. And we even see in our transition countries where we have seen diversification into different sectors, such as uh, IT outsourcing, often had something to do with the U.S. investor coming in with some kind of diaspora engagement. It hasn't really yes. flourished that much locally. It might after a while once you once you develop that dynamic. But it's important to it's important to develop it. So let's pass now to the local level. Well, the first question that I always ask myself is why are we doing something that's unsustainable in the first place? And the obvious sort of Responses, we're not pricing externalities correctly. Or, uh, but in terms of resources, if we have less resources, then the prices should go up and either we invest in more resources or in using it more efficiently or we find alternative ways. Now that doesn't always happen, of course, but it's important to understand at the local level why that doesn't happen. And that's why I think it's at the local level where you can try out different kinds of, different kinds of solutions, both to understand the problem and to uh, to see what you can do about it and even create entrepreneurship opportunities around that. So talk about the regional and local levels. You talk about uh, different regions have different trajectories of industrial development, yes. uh, the role of regional innovation, and why local innovation systems are so important in implementing these practices, such as wine production in Pansano and and the textile examples that you talked about. As I have indicated before, I mean, one of the key characteristics of the current sustainability challenge is that they require system transformations, particularly if we are thinking about a strong sustainability as, as a goal. I mean, keeping our economic systems within the planetary boundaries. And system transformation is about experimenting with different solutions. And uh, we know from experience that the, this uh, experimentation tends to happen or tends to be enabled um, in an easier way at, uh, at local level. I mean, there is uh, abundant uh, literature about urban transformations and regional transformations as a spaces where this experimentation, protected spaces where this experimentation can take place. 
So, as I mentioned before, also due to this, this sticky character of knowledge, actor tends to look for the knowledge that they need to innovate in their proximity. And this is why the regional innovation system in which the actors are operating uh, plays such an important role. So when we are talking about system transformation, we are talking about creating new paths. And uh, path creation, uh, or that is at least what the literature tells us, that path creation tends to happen in regional or local innovation systems that are strong and diversified. And this is uh, exactly the point that you were mentioning before. So diversification can come in many different ways. It can come in industrial diversification, but also as we have found out in diversification of actors and knowledge sources. I mean, really tapping into new knowledge uh, that may be located really far away, but enabling these global innovation networks to to gather the, the knowledge that you need to experiment, that you need to innovate, and that you need to transform. And uh, it, let me give you, I mean, you have mentioned the the case of, of Panzano, which I, I, I think that is a really fascinating example. So let me just uh, spend a couple of minutes on that. I did uh, this this research together with uh, Filippo Randelli at the University of Florence of uh, of a region in Italy, in the region of Chianti, that had uh, transformed into organic production at a, at a much, much faster pace than any other region, any other locality in, in the same uh, larger region in Italy. So we were really intrigued by why in this particular locality the transformation had been much faster than in the rest of the Chianti region. And uh, what we found out was really interesting. First of all, Panzano, that region, had attracted a number of actors from outside the region, some of them international, coming from the U.S., for example, and some of them coming from other regions far away in Italy. And these actors, they shared the vision. They really wanted to create, uh, to start producing organically. They wanted to create uh, an environment uh, that was uh, not uh, so hostile to nature, so to say. And uh, this was not because the market was demanding it uh, or because there was a price for that, but uh, they they wanted to work for an agriculture model that was, as I said, not harming nature, that uh, where their families uh, could uh, thrive and live. And uh, what is interesting about these people that came to the region is that uh, they combine, I mean, some of them had some specific scientific training, scientific knowledge in enology, which they combined with indigenous local knowledge on how to produce organically before the pesticides came into place. So the diversity of actors and knowledge was very important to ignite the transformation. But what accelerated the transformation was social capital and a wider dissemination of knowledge to other producers. And uh, what these core producers did, from my perspective, was very clever. They created an experimental station. They hired an agronomist whose main role was actually to help other producers in the region to turn into organic, to explain to them what was, uh, what was the model to produce organically. And this agronomist was just paid by some of them, but it spread the knowledge throughout the region. So from our perspective, it was a combination of a strong social capital, 
trust and a sense of place, together with this diversity of factors, diversity of knowledge, a common vision, again, this directionality, social capital, and a wider dissemination of knowledge that made this acceleration happen. So one needs to distinguish between this, what triggers the change and what can accelerate the change. Well, thank you very much. I, I find that a fascinating example for several reasons. One is maybe the pure accidents of different factors. There were no clear, at least at that time, the, the demand signals uh, were not clear, the habits were not developed, but a combination of different factors triggered this development. And I'm also a fan of Eleanor Ostrom, it's an anthropologist and won the Nobel Prize, explaining all kinds of different situations where normally we would expect there not to be a solution unless there was government intervention. So in, in what we call the tragedy of the commons. And this could be one of those stories because it required collective, collective effort with distributed gains to a certain extent, but they managed to bring that about. So that's an excellent example. But of course, there are also many examples that didn't work out and also many examples where there was uh, government support and it didn't work out. Could you talk about a few other cases? You talk in particular about textile industry in Italy and Sweden right at the time in the 70s when uh, the labor costs were becoming too high to compete with the opportunity to, to produce uh, abroad. And I think you have two very interesting diverging narratives of what happened there. Uh, this would be Prato in Italy and Borås in, in Sweden, the previous textile center during the Swedish Industrial Revolution. Yes, these are, very, uh, these are two interesting examples because they are, I mean, we are talking here about the different type of uh, innovation system, one that is highly specialized in a particular industry. So we, we investigated under which conditions, actually, a path creation can happen, even in thick and specialized uh, innovation systems like uh, in, in Boros and uh, in, in Sweden and in Prato in Italy. And uh, what we found was uh, was really interesting in terms of uh, how the the innovation policy and uh, and the I mean both the regional and the national innovation policy can actually shape or enable different trajectories. So in the case of uh, Boros, the transformation strategy of the textile industry was based on establishing links with Nanotech Lab to develop a smart textiles. So just to, for those that do, do not know what the smart textiles are, are, for example, textiles that include sensors so that uh, they can change uh, or they can adapt the textile to the temperature of your body and the external uh, temperature. So if you are, I mean, if it is uh, very cold, they feel warmer, but if it is uh, very warm, they feel uh, cooler. So it is a very specific niche that they wanted to enter, one that it was very high-tech. And what they did is that they submitted a proposal to the national agency, to Vinova, which is the agency in Sweden in charge of innovation policy, with a proposal that was with several actors at regional level saying we want to go in this direction is really path breaking or is a new a new path. We will need to link with nanotech labs and they receive long term funding from Vinova 
to actually develop uh, this strategy in the long term. So um, right now, the smart textile uh, cluster, it is a reality. They have developed uh, different uh, smart textiles, and they have entered into a niche that is highly specialized, very high-tech, and uh, without the support of the national government or the regional government, that uh, path creation would not have been possible. In Prato, the situation was uh, rather different. I mean, it was still a textile industry. It was still a region specialized in uh, in textile, but uh, with a very strong inertia in uh, repeating business as usual and uh, and in developing the industry as it had been in the last hundred years. So in that region, we actually found very uh, forward-looking innovators but they didn't have the support, actually, that they needed uh, to innovate. They needed to tap into or to develop uh, new networks at uh, national and international level. And they were left to operate, uh, so to say, in the margins of the local and regional innovation systems. The result was that uh, they were innovators, but the lack of support at regional level really did not leverage them to enable those regional transformations. So in one case, in Boros, we have uh, the very clear role of uh, the national and the regional government aligned uh, with the vision and creating the opportunities for this transformation at the regional level, while in the case of Prato, we see the opposite. And I mean, an innovation system that is actually not enabling or not creating the conditions for the innovators that uh, exist in the system to thrive. Well, thank you. Those are very interesting examples, especially that of Boros being able to use technology to, to move up the value chain and a very good example of a government intervention that, that actually made a difference. But, of course, we also know there's, there's a lot of innovation that does not uh, or government intervention that do not make a difference or might even constrain innovation. So it's important to to understand, especially for our audience, what kind of um, mechanisms, what kind of uh, models can be used to, uh, to make sure that uh, intervention is, is as efficient as possible. Swedish governance, of course, is, has relatively high levels of transparency and uh, the media is watching them all the time. The controller is watching them all the time. They constantly have to justify themselves, so even when they make mistakes, they're pretty good at stopping doing those mistakes. And, of course, if it's innovation, you will make many mistakes. But in other countries, we don't see this. So as you write in your work, when industries or new activities are to be created, reinforcing policies at national and regional level need to be strongly coordinated along common visions of the new development path. So how should government coordinate levels on the national, within the national and regional innovation systems? Could you give an example when this coordination that uh, did not take place and what the results were? Well, that's a, a very difficult question to answer, notably because the lack of coordination or the unsuccessful cases are far more difficult to, to study. But uh, let me go back to the three examples that, uh, that I have put before and then uh, look at this, uh, at this role of alignment, basically, of visions and directionality of the transformation. So, well, let, let me start with Boros as a successful case. 
We know that Binova, the agency in charge of our innovation policy in Sweden, uh, they had for many years a program supporting regional transformations. So it was really a long-term funding, long-term support. And uh, the idea was instead of the government indicating or setting up the agenda for regional transformation, what was very interesting about this program is that it was the regional actors that uh, decide in which direction they wanted to go, how did they want to create this new path, and then submitted that uh, application to the national government, to the national agency, Vinova, to get some funding for and this long-term funding for the transformation. I mean, of course, Vinova was granting that the funding because what it was proposed was aligned with the general objectives and the strategy of the government. So in this case, there was the national strategy and the bottom-up proposal coming from the region was really aligned to this national strategy. But but it was very interesting because it was bottom up. I mean, it was really not a, not a top down setting up the agenda. In other cases, I think that the role of the national government has been mostly as an enabler of regional transformation, or let's say not constraining in a deliberate way that transformation. And that would be the case of Panzano. So when we analyze the transformation in Panzano and to organic wine, there is a vision of the region, but uh, that vision of the region is not uh, being stopped in any way by the national government. On the contrary, when, when throughout the process of transformation they encounter resistance or problems in terms of laws, for example, or regulations and so on, they went to the to the government and they tried to change uh, those institutions. And one of the consequences is that now, for example, there is new regulations about bio-districts in which the, the people in Panzano are very actively involved. But, uh, I mean, I think that also in very broad terms, one can see that the national government has also played a pivotal role in supporting, for example, scientific and education infrastructure that has enabled the transformation of the regional innovation system. And that is very clearly the case of of Oras, of course, but also of Bangalore, where the the government had uh, for 50 years been investing in education, in science and technology capabilities before really the software industry took off in Bangalore. So I think that the, the role of the national policy and the alignment between the national policy and the regional policy can be analyze through different lenses as a kind of proactive role, enabling or setting up the direction, but also as not opposing (laughs) the change or as providing those enabling conditions for the transformation to happen, which is related to what we or how we started this conversation, talking about the role of the government setting up the basic conditions for innovation to happen, right? Well, Thank you. I think you, you give excellent illustration of three different ways in which innovation policy can, can work effectively. One is through long-term support through flexible instruments to provide direct support to bottom-up initiatives. That would be the case of Boros. And I, I presume yes. that um, financial support was catalytic, but uh, probably also the relational support was important as well. Uh, Absolutely. Then you talk about the role of the government as an enabler of already existing momentum in Pansano. 
And we have several experiments with things like regulatory test beds across the EU that try to give freedom for innovators to find solutions that create the same or better impact as existing technologies, but because they don't build on existing technologies, they might fall foul of regulations. And there's a certain guarantee there that the government will then make sure that the regulations are adapted so that they are allowed, and that removes quite a bit of risk and frees up quite a bit uh, of innovation. So in conclusion, you're also doing some very interesting work on small island development states. I work myself in Vanuatu. I found it absolutely fascinating. And although our double landlocked countries that we work with, Uzbekistan, for instance, are maybe the opposite of small island development states, they do face some of the same problems, especially in terms of communications and and transport costs. They have to pay a lot to, to export and to import. And the value that they need to create per unit of export to be competitive in the world market is much higher than than for countries that have access to the oceans and are also not too far away. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your experience with those countries now to promote innovation and overcome the physical obstacles they face. So this uh, this project that started in 2020, and of course it has been delayed also because of the COVID uh, traveling restrictions. The the purpose of the project was to try to analyze the transformative capacity of a small island state by looking both at historical preconditions, but also at agency. And uh, as you were indicated, seats uh, share similar historical preconditions. I mean, they are really remote islands. Uh, they have high transport costs, high migration rates, uh, low wages. But uh, even with uh, similar preconditions, there are countries like Mauritius, for example, that have been able to transform the economy uh, from agriculture to services in a rather successful way, even when they had the very similar starting point, maybe in the 50s or in the, uh, in the 60s. So this suggests basically that agency could uh, play a very important role. So we started this this project with an overview of uh, how the concept of transformative capacity can be adapted to nation states and also uh, an overview on uh, how the 58 uh, seats uh, were faring in terms of the sustainable development goals. The latter is actually a study conducted by my colleagues in economic history, Ellen Hilborn, Anna Tegunimataka and Andres Palacios. And uh, some of the things that they found just related to this agency discussion is that, uh, for example, the Pacific uh, Ocean Islands or the the seats in the Pacific Oceans were showing the highest uh, levels of poverty and equality. But uh, yet some of the Pacific Island states have been eradicating extreme poverty with lower levels of income per capita in comparison with other counterparts in other parts of the world. So we concluded that there was this, uh, this implication that the state ability to craft and enforce policy does matter. So historical preconditions, remoteness and uh, low uh, wages, they matter, but also agency for change uh, really matters. So we started really investigating this role of uh, agency as a key component of transformative capacity and then how agency is really transforming or playing with this cognitive dimension and structural dimension. And uh, that national policy and more specifically science, technology and innovation policies were playing a very important role in shaping this transformative capacity of the nation states. And let me explain a little bit why. 
if we talk about the cognitive capacity, we need to think that transformative processes, as we were discussing before, refer to experimentation. So it's about integrating different types of knowledge, co-creating new knowledge, uh, combining different perspectives. So it is really about innovation and innovation capacity. So a very great or large component of the transformative capacity is actually the capacity to experiment and to innovate. And for example, I mean, we can say that transformation may require development of new technical solutions like renewable energy, but also greater inclusion of marginal groups in decision making, so indigenous women or social innovation, and uh, may also require some changes in former rules. So we have this cognitive component that is uh, very strongly related to innovation and the innovation capacity and the capacity to experiment, right? Then we have the structural dimension that both refers to enabling institutions that we have also seen before that they were very important, but also to networks. And uh, those are two very key components of any innovation systems. So innovation policies encouraging and facilitating knowledge network outside, uh, for example, the region internationally, as well as an environment for innovation and experimentations are crucial for transformative capacity. And ultimately, at the end, transformative capacity is the capacity of individuals, networks and organizations, sectors or nations, uh, to be able to both transform themselves and the society in a deliberate and conscious way. And national and regional policymakers play several roles in enabling transformations. And, uh, for example, I would like actually to refer to recent work that Susana Borras and Jacob Edler are doing, really looking at the different hats, I mean, the different roles that policies can have and policymakers can have in really enacting and promoting this cognitive dimension and a structural dimension to facilitate transformations at a national level. And that is uh, what we are looking uh, in these uh, small island states. I mean, what is the role of agency? What is the role of policies? To, but also what is the role of this cognitive dimension and a structural dimension and how did it change over time? Thank you very much. I'm absolutely fascinated by the anthropological approach that, that uh, you are trying to apply to this problem and also the situation that the small island development states are in. Adam Smith said specialization is limited by the size of the market. Well, the size is very small. Transactions costs are very high. Distances are high, low. The population is low. There's nothing obvious out there. So the only way out is to deliberately build this capacity to experiment with different ideas and to have strong institutions, whether they be government institutions or others, to drive that. Mauritius, of course, has you know, a certain critical mass of population, but many of these countries do not. And I think this might actually be a very interesting topic for follow-up on uh, sort of trying to get at the rich description of how these paths emerge and, uh, and why and in which, which conditions. Uh, we'll also make sure to link to the work of, that you mentioned of Professor Boras on the episode page. Well, good. Thank you very much. I would offer you, if you have uh, two or three main messages that you want to convey to, especially to the ones working on innovation policy and in transition economies based on your work, there are only three things that they remember from this podcast. But, uh, what should they be from your point of view? 
Well, I think that I would start by saying that uh, directionality is very important. So innovation policies are a very important element uh, in the transformation of systems, but uh, that having a very clear goal on where or the direction of that change is, is very, very important. And we have seen that the alignment also between national and regional policies, between national and regional strategies is also very important, that sometimes this alignment can really enable path creation and path transformation, and in other cases, it can really stop or uh, hamper the transformation possibilities of particular regions or particular industries. And the last point that I want to make is that global innovation networks or networks, international networks and accessing knowledge that is not available in the regional or in the national innovation system in many occasions is really a crucial element, a crucial ingredient for transformations and for the creation of new paths, more sustainable economically, socially and environmentally. Thank you very much. I think that was an excellent point to end on. And I thank you very much for being part of Innovation Matters. Our guest today has been Christina Chaminade, uh, the Director of the Master Program on Innovation and Global Sustainable Development at Lund University. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me.